Good news, you're here just in time. Here's another Laneway Talks. Okay, Billy, thanks for uh, coming in and uh, talking to Laneway Music at uh, Laneway Headquarters. Let's just start from the beginning and say, where are you from originally? Well, I'm from uh, Paran originally, right near the Alfred Hospital. Lived there most of my life till I was nine. Then we went to Sydney for four years. Came back here in 1965 and stayed here for seven or eight years. That's when I started writing songs and that at Caulfield High School. Well, when did you actually pick up a guitar or a musical instrument? Was the guitar right. your first musical instrument? Yeah, well, we've always had pianos, so we've always, you know, plucked out songs on the piano because my mum was the organist at the Methodist Church for many years. My grandfather was a Methodist minister on her side, so I've always had the uh, Wesleyan church songs, which are really good. You know that's in the flavour of Alice Cooper, don't you? Because his parent, his father, right. was a minister also. And you look in his songs and there's heaps of G, D, E minor. And that's what the Wesleyan hymn book is, basically. That's what my song, God is a Shield, is, those chords. So, yeah. But I picked up the guitar about 65, 66. I think I was 13. Mum bought me a Bellini guitar for 10 bucks. Uh, I already knew every Beatles song to that stage and uh, I just started learning them. And so did you uh, did you actually go to... Uh... Lessons? Yeah. No. I went to lessons. Um, no, I just taught, you know, read the chords in the book. I've got a really good musical ear. And so I could find any chords that word in the book and, you know, sheet music. So essentially you just picked up the guitar and yeah. from ear just started to play around. Yeah. And as for a lot of people, it then came naturally after that and you just, you know, you, you learnt your chords and... Yeah. Um, and um, what you basically do then is put on your favourite records and you play along with them. It's the way a lot of us did it. It's what everybody does. And... Uh, you feel good because you're playing with the Beatles. You're learning off the best and you're learning all the songs which I'm still playing today. So as so from around that period, therefore, yeah. what, so the Beatles were obviously your influences at that time, were they? Beatles and Elvis, yeah. Then when I got into my mid-teens, you know, the Kinks and the Who started coming in and a few other people, but it was a lot of Beatles, yeah. So, what was your first band? And when I say your first band, not you, you know, your couple no. of your mates in your garage or whatever. What was your first real band that you? Well, put it together? wasn't a band. It was a duo, and you know, nearly all the songs I wrote in the first thirty years of writing songs were written with a friend of mine from Caulfield High School, Martin Falls, and like so, nearly there's six songs on the Ferrets Gold album that are Falls Miller songs. So. It's not just, you know, mates writing songs. So we were seriously writing songs from uh, 1968, 69 at school, after school. But you must have had a, um, a, ve a very musical family, because I, mm. I, I, I do remember at the time, mm. was it one sister or two sisters? Two in sisters, the, in yeah, the band? brother, it, yeah. Yeah, you know, so it was a very musical family. Yeah, was. but like... Um, when you're a teenager, you're not interested in what your sisters and, and everybody else is doing. It's all about you. So uh, Martin was a really, and is, a really good word writer. So the, the template was, I've got the guitar, I'm playing the chords, he's writing the words. Sort of like the, how the Beatles started. It was mainly probably um, John on words and Paul on chords, maybe a little bit that way, but uh, that's how we were. But what, what happened for as a duo then? Did you actually go out and yeah. play some gigs? Yeah, our first gig was round the corner at the Green Man in High Street, Armadale, just round the corner here. I think it still goes. Back then it was like a, a folk club. I'm talking about 69, 70. We got $5 each for playing there. 
Also, like, soon after we started writing songs, we started writing, a lot of our songs were, like, ten minutes long, like little mini operas, which is one of the reasons why when we took the songs to companies and that, we did Happening 70 and Happening 69 with two acoustics. Um, but that wasn't un, that wasn't um, unusual back then, mm. and progressive rock was probably early 70s, mm. uh, but that flavour of, yeah. you know, anything past five minutes up to 10 to 13-minute songs yeah. were quite common at that well point. it was common might have been common on uh album tracks and and you know people who have been playing for a long time i don't know if it was common with 16 17 year old kids in Elstonwick. <laughs> um anyhow we did that and we also played at you know we played at q club you know remember q town hall i remember we supported russell morris and all whoever the big stars were now that was as a duo yeah. And so it was you and Martin. Me and Martin. No uh, no pickups on guitars. So back in the days where you've got a mic there and you've got to make sure your guitar doesn't get too far from it, which is easy to do in a studio, but when you're at a live gig and you're trying to play, you know, pop music, it's hard. So God knows what it sounded like, but we didn't. And there was another place called Jeff Brooks Steak Cave. Oh, that's a new one. Jeff Brooks was the grumpy judge on New Faces, right? There's, uh, you remember New Faces. Oh, I sure do. So this is in, actually went on it in 72 in Sydney, which you'll probably talk about when we get to 72. But, um, yeah, he put us on too. We did a few gigs at his joint, another one, $5 each and a steak. So what? So from the duo, yeah. How did it progress? How how did it come about that you thought, right? I've got to get a band together. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a whole thing that happens before. Oh yeah. Okay. So also around about that time, I played in my first rock band in '69, and it was called Armadillo, and we had a residency at Hosey's, which is I don't know if you know that pub on it was called Connell's I think on the corner of Elizabeth Street and Flinders Street big pub called Hosey's and we were playing there it was a three-piece me Manny Paterakis who I don't know if you've heard of but tell us a bit about Manny didn't Manny was my my best mate at school apart from my songwriting mate was Ted Ted Paterakis and his older brother Manny who was a couple of few years older than us he was a drummer and he played in all the Greek nightclubs around Melbourne he played at like five in the morning so he'd finish one he'd do eight to eleven and the second one was a really late one and you know we used to be impressed we'd come home from school and he'd be in his pajamas practicing his drums in front of the mirror he's a beauty anyhow Manny heard me and my friend Martin doing our acoustic songs and obviously we started having jams together and uh, so he wanted to put together, or we all did, um, this band called Armadillo. So it was me, Manny on drums and a guy called Dave Flett on bass who is like a genius and taught me so much. Um, He was the bass player in Captain Matchbox but he also built most of the studios he built Richmond Recorders I forget all the studios he's built but he became a big studio and what age bracket are we talking about at this point are you 18 yet yeah I'm just 18 so I'd never really played an electric before electric guitar so I had to have a crash course in that I got I don't know where I got it or what the guitar was back then so here's us the, the three piece playing it and you know and we were playing things like manic depression by um Hendrix you know I was able to sort of pick up soul songs and and songs like Manic Depression and be able to play them because that band, you know, obviously that band, it was um, covers, but it wasn't covers, the covers I play now, it wasn't 60s covers, it was like soul songs and um, Hendrix and stuff like that. So it was sort of thrown in at the deep end, but we went pretty well for a year or so. Like I said, I didn't know anything about electric, but Dave Flett taught me a lot. So that was actually your introduction to a band, electric to a band, band yeah. as such. So mm. where did we move to from there? Where was the next progression in a in in your musical yeah. band career? So in the back of my mind, you know, um, my goal is to be like the Beatles, the next 
Beatles, of course, that's like the overriding. And when you say Beatles, it just means be successful, you know, pop rock musician. So uh, we were doing that, and at one stage, Martin, my mate, I wrote all the songs with, he bought a combi for 200 bucks. And we said, let's go to Sydney, see what it's like up there, because, you know, it was pretty frustrating playing. Because what we were really, you know, our love was with our songs and, and playing at places with two guitars back then, it was hard. Two acoustics, like I said, you couldn't hear it. It was pretty, pretty hard. So we thought, go to Sydney. So up we drive to Sydney in early 72, uh, staying in a caravan park, wrote the title track of the Ferrets album, Dreams of Love, in the Narrabang caravan park when it was raining. And when you think about that, and you think about that, the end product of that song, mm. um, to be written that way and then to, to have that big vibe about the yeah. track um, is quite amazing. Yeah, but when we wrote it, um, I heard all the strings and, and choirs and everything. As soon as we'd finished it and we'd play it just the two of us, but I could hear all the arrangements as well. Well, I think if anybody if anybody watching doesn't know what we're talking about, yeah. we'll have this up online because yeah. you actually did that at the Night Oaths concert. Yeah, uh, we'll have it up online soon, and it was uh, it's amazing because there's a probably an eighty piece orchestra playing behind you. Yeah, it's the strings from the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, so that's about I think there was about twenty of them and. 40 or 60 boys from the National Boys Choir. They were up there and heaps of other people just adding little bits. So let, let's go. So we you started so we, to write these songs. Yeah. And so we're really getting towards the ferrets now, aren't we? Because these songs were used on that album. Yeah, we are, but something came in, in the middle of it, which is um, Jesus Christ Superstar. So, so we're up there in 72. We haven't got much money. We're living in caravan parks. My dear wife and I, Lucy and Martin and his girlfriend at the time and usually a sister or two, uh, so I used to go down to this pub in North Sydney every Friday night. They had a talent quest worth 30 bucks. I'd go down there. I won it two or three times, but then they stopped me. They said, you can't keep. I think I did Elvis songs. I did, um, Wise Men See. Can't help falling in love with you. I did You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Well, those classics, aren't they? Kept us going, that yeah. money. And then at the same time, I saw the ad in the paper for Jizz Cross Superstar auditions. So I went along to that at the Capitol Theatre, you know, a whole heap of people there in the corridor. Felt a bit, you know, what am I doing here? I should nick off, but kept going. And got in there and um, the musical director, first they asked you to play a song. Most, most of the people had sheet music and the piano player was there and he'd play, especially the girls had sheet music. A few of the guys had guitars and sang different songs. I sang um, Southern Man, Neil Young. And I got to the end of the first chorus and Patrick Flynn, the musical director, he's an English bloke, he's a ripper. He just said, okay, stop, that's enough, I've heard enough. And he said, can you clap this rhythm? Because Superstar had two songs with different rhythms. One was 7-4, that's the temple scene, and one was 5-4, the opening song. So it's like, everything's all right. That song's 5-4, and the temple scene is 7-4. So you had to be able to clap that, which I did straight away, and I was in, like like it took about two minutes. What, what? Who were some of the other names that were in that version? Because that's the original superstar. Mm. Well, they'd been running for six weeks and they'd done their national tour and they'd done six weeks at the Capitol. John Paul Young, Stevie Wright, John English, Marsha Hines. Blake Parkinson there also? No. No? No, he wasn't in there. I mean, there's a full list of names just in that mouthful there. Well, Michael Caton from Neighbours, the great actor, and and The Castle. He was one of the priests. Um, uh, Who else? John English, Trevor White, he was great. Oh, yes, Trevor White. Reg Livermore was Herod. I mean, you don't have to go any further than that. That's that's a list of who's who of Australian, you know, music. Yeah, so most of us were in. So what they wanted to do, obviously, was, you know, musicals usually up till that stage, I think, um, or maybe up till here, I think they used to get 
actors and teach them how to sing. Actors who could sing, but on this one, I think they decided, let's get the really good singers and then, you know, teach them how to act or going from that angle. Obviously, it was a huge success. Yeah, it was fantastic. So I was in there for three years. So that sort of put things on hold, especially with Martin. Martin ended up coming come back to Melbourne because he wasn't in the show. My sister Pam ended up getting into the show. She was in it for two years. But that became, like, suddenly you're getting a, a wage, which is a good wage after being on the dole for years or not having any money. So it's pretty good. And I used to get extra because I was the understudy to Jesus, Trevor White, so I did that. 20 times or something. I was the understudy to Stevie Wright's role and I was the understudy to J.P. Wise Priest Annis' role. It's like for the Jesus understudy, you'd get an extra $12 a week and the other two, you get an extra six each. Which was a lot of money. Yeah. Which was a lot of money. And you sort of get $100 a week. So that's on top of that and suddenly... uh, you can afford to buy things. So how, so that ends after three years and mm. do you, you got to think about, well, what am I going to do? Or had yeah. you already had the thoughts about, let's call it the ferrets, but it, no. was, it was a band? No. Well, actually, during the Superstar years, we were living up in Sydney and we actually started. Ken Firth, who's the bass player from the Ferrets, who was in the uh, Jesus Christ Superstar Orchestra, he was in a band called Tully, who were a sensational band. This is before the show. So he's an established musician and he was in the orchestra pit and we just hit it off like that because he's a Beatles fanatic too. So before long we were, you know, all in the same house together and playing songs all night, jamming all night. So him and I... And this other friend of ours, the guy who wrote the words to Don't Fall In Love, was a drummer. He wasn't a good enough drummer eventually to be in the Ferrets, but back then he was good enough. And we found the guitarist from Narrabeen, Dave Springfield, who ended up the Ferrets guitarist. And we actually did quite a few gigs up there in 73, 74, called the Rocking Ferrets. We're called the Rocking Ferrets. We supported uh, Sherbet at the DY uh, Hotel. We did a gig at the Royal Antler Hotel, which is another legendary hotel up there, with Stevie Wright on drums, because our drummer, I think he, yeah, he got arrested and went to jail. Well, that's one for the cards. I never knew Stevie Wright was a drummer. Yeah. That's just uh, incredible. It's probably the only gig he did on drums, but... No, he was, he was great. So we all lived in Manly, Steve. You lived around the corner and we were all having a great time. So we did a few gigs in the Rocking Ferrets like that. Then we just got homesick for Melbourne, especially me. So I, was out, I wasn't in the show anymore. I was sort of dribbling along with uh, the Rocking Ferrets. So I said, right, the footy season's starting next week. Time to go back to Melbourne. <laughs> and um, so we're sitting around Melbourne wondering what to do. This is me, Ken Firth, the bass player, and Dave, the other guitarist, who that would be the nucleus of the ferrets. And this girl called Karen Sullivan came along. Now, Karen was the wife of Barry Sullivan, the bass player in Chain, Big Goose. And um, she was managing this band called Buster Brown. And, and for people that don't know, Angry Anderson. Yeah. And... Um, he was looking, he wanted to change his whole band. He wanted to keep Digger Dallas Royal, his drummer, who ended up going with him into Rose Tattoo. But they they needed to change the whole band. So Karen talked us into just Blanc, us plus Digger on drums with Angry. So we were in that for uh, six months. So you, you're essentially in a band with Angry Anderson. Yeah. So you were the guitarist? Yeah. And Angry oh, there were two guitarists. Yes, yeah. I was, Dave was always more of the lead guitarist. Yeah. He's a left-handed yeah. Fender, uh, Ferret's guy. Yeah. Yeah, so two guitars, bass and drums, and Angry. So we did, you know, we did quite a few gigs and... That would have been a great, it would have been great to hear that and to... Yeah. But I'll assume there's nothing available. No. No recordings. No. We did, um, oh, what's now the Hard Rock Cafe or was, you know, the corner of Spring and 
Flinders. We did a couple of schools, Moravan Tech. Then we got a two weeks in, um, and they were pretty established then already. So you had a bit of a name angry. Then we got booked for two weeks in Perth, which was like, you know, you could write a book about it, but um, the band ended up breaking up over there. And we, we, there was this place called the Sand Groper, which was the main gig over there, and you lived there and played there. And we did two weeks there, residency. Some really bad things happened, which I'm not going into now, but in the end, the band broke up. Angry and Digger got the train back to Melbourne. Somehow in dribs and drabs, everybody left, but I didn't have enough money and I was enjoying Perth. So I decided to stay there for a while. And I lived there for three months. My wife ended up coming over. We lived on the beach at Cottesloe and um, at a friend's place. And I played in the bars in Perth during lunchtime. I called myself Billy McCartney playing, you know, Blackbird and Yesterday and songs like that for the office workers at lunchtime. So I lived there for three months, came back. By now we're up to probably the start of 75. During that time uh, in 74, while we're in Sydney, uh, we had, you know, we had the nucleus of the ferrets. We were called the Rocking Ferrets. And we went on this competition called Fresh Cream on uh, Two Double J, it was called then, not Triple J. And uh, you'd play your original song and um, songs and whoever won, won uh, eight hours recording in the Channel 2 studios and you get your half an hour on Double J, they'd play all your songs. So we won it and we went in and did this great demo of eight of the songs that ended up being on the Ferrets record, different recordings, but it was a demo for them. And it was a really good quality. So we'd had that in the background, you know, just on the tape throughout the Buster Brown time and that. So after we got back from Perth, I went and saw a friend of mine called Frank Housen. Uh, he was a dancer in Superstar and he's a sort of Melbourne identity songwriter, filmmaker. He ended up setting up Boardwalk Films. They had quite a few good films. Anyhow, I, I got on to Frank because he knew Molly. I decided, um, I got this great demo, who do I want to approach? And it had to be Molly for three reasons. First, he's the best record producer I'd heard in Australia because of the real thing. Second, he's a Mad St Kilda supporter. And third, well, the St Kilda sport is probably third. Second is the Beatles. You know, he's a Beatles fanatic. So because of those things, I was just, I'd never met him. I didn't know him. I just thought he's the one. Uh, so Frank Housen knew Molly and organised a meeting with him at the Channel 2 studios. Went there. Molly was sort of away with the fairies a bit because a friend of his had just been killed in a motorbike accident. So he's listening to the songs and then probably the best song off the Ferrets record in my mind, Just Like the Stars, comes on. And it just, his whole demeanour just changed and he started crying and this is the best song I've heard since the Beatles and all this stuff. And next minute he's on the phone to Gadinsky and saying, Michael, you've got to sign this band, which wasn't really a band, but, you know, and there we go. That is that's the it. start of the ferrets. Yeah, that's it. So, so next process is you go in and record. You, you got the nuclear. You've had the kind of yeah. nucleus together. You, you've demoed the songs. You go in and record. And before we went in to record, we needed a drummer because our old drummer, who was a real lovable rogue, was back in jail again, and. Uh, <laughs> He named the band The Ferrets, which is sort of Pentridge term for your dick, I think. He used to say, you'd go out and, you know, someone would crack onto a girl or vice versa, a girl would crack onto them. But then, did, did you get, did the ferret get a run? And we're going, what are you talking about, you know? And that's what it meant. And that's where sort it came of, from. Sort of Pentridge lingo for, you know, yeah. So in, in you go and you record the Ferrets album. Oh, yeah, sorry, now, before yeah. we get there, yeah. we haven't got a drummer. Uh, Molly's really close to Rick Brewer, the drummer from the Zoot, 
And at that time, he was playing with um, Jim Key's Southern Star Band, I think it was called. And uh, he just thought Rick would be perfect for the ferrets. And turned out he was. We, you know, got on like a house on fire. We're at his house, which is just around the corner, rehearsing all day for weeks. And so then we went in to record, yeah. Now, during this period, how are you living? During that, is uh, oh, we're, we're on, the on, on the dole because that yeah. was the common thing for musicians to do to yeah. survive, and that's it's why like thirteen dollars a week or seventeen dollars a week or so. But uh, even once you get started, even when the ferrets were, you know, at their most popular, we weren't making a way. Well, I was going to ask you is that. When was, what was your first taste of fame? Now, mm. put aside this superstar because that is, that's a big yeah. show. But as a band, yeah. and you, you know, the band that you're in, whether it be your band or it's a band, yeah. when was your first taste of fame? Oh, I don't know. It's probably the same for a lot of people. It's the first time you hear your song on the radio. <laughs> and um, we just played at the Croxton Park. We're out in the car having a joint, and it came on three X Y, and that's like, yeah, that's that's the highlight. And then it's just a regular play on there, and you know, forty years later, mm. it's still a regular play, mm. and you know, nobody's the wiser at the time, thinking mm. I've I've just sang and you know recorded an iconic Australian track. So, um, so the ferrets go to a huge, you know. They're, they're, well, there's a lot of stories behind it. Like the yeah. song that was a hit wasn't meant to be the A side. Um, the recording of the album took 18 months, and uh, the longest recording in the history of Australian rock and roll. And and people draw, you know, lots of conclusions. But the fact is, Molly was countdown was going crazy. It was the biggest thing in Australia. And um, he was, every second week, he was off interviewing, interviewing, you know, Elton or all the big stars, you know, Paul McCartney and all them. And uh, we had to wait till he got back because Molly wouldn't let us do anything without him being there. He really, it was his project, you know. He was the manager, the producer, he was everything. Were you playing as the Ferrets we live no, during that period? No, we didn't do a gig at all till after we'd finished the record. We didn't do any gigs. So so, so the band, because I, I do remember a countdown episode mm. where it was devoted to the Ferris. I Don't Fall In Love was huge and mm. um, and all it was about was being on the bus on a national tour with the Ferrets. Longing the, the Ferrets, yeah. So when are the Ferrets hitting their peak, mm. you know, um, and, and a lot of bands do have a lot of success nationally on yeah. radio but do not have success on the road. Yeah, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. You know, you've heard before about the talent's about 3%. There's getting on with people. There's so many factors involved. Uh, but the thing is, so it took us a long time to record it. It, it got to the stage where Gadinsky's going, right, we've got to put out a single. We ended up doing a version of Robin Hood. That's the first ferret single. Which there is a video for too. I've I haven't seen it. I've definitely seen it's a video. If I could see it, I would be so happy because they count down people, you know, Molly, this was like a holding pattern. We need something to come out that'll last for two or three months before the big gun songs come out. Heard us doing a version of Robin Hood. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, running through the glen. So we did a rock version of it. Channel 2 took us out to Eltham. They gave us horse riding lessons, archery lessons. I was Robin Hood. At this stage, my idol in life was Errol Flynn, and he used to draw on a moustache, pencil moustache, and I started doing that. I, I had it on all the time. So I was Robin Hood. KD was Maid Marion. You know, we all played parts in this film clip, and, of course, it, you know, it didn't do anything, so we just kept recording. And at one stage... Um, we had this single called Lies, which was written by the same two who wrote Don't Fall In Love, the bass player and the old drummer. And so they said, look, you've got to go and do a B-side. Molly's going, I'm not wasting any of the good tracks on a B-side. So you've got to go and do a B-side. So we were pretty naughty at this stage too. We were really, 
carrying on. But um, Tony Cohen, who was the engineer who I'd met when he was doing engineering the um, I Like It Both Ways Supernaut single. He was 18 with hair down his bum and he was obviously going to be a great engineer and Molly liked him, so he got him to be our engineer. Tony had a key to... Armstrong's, which is now Metropolis Studio, it's a big studio in South Melbourne. And we'd sneak in after midnight when there was just the security guard there and just record to our heart's content, you know, and add stuff. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so we said, okay, we'll go in tonight at two o'clock and do Don't Fall In Love, the B side. Katie and Ian had just written it a few nights before at a party in Caulfield. Everything happens around. Caulfield, Pran, Malvern. Um, so we go in. I picked up Rick Brewer from his place in Hawthorne. He's the drummer. Get his drums in the car. We get the studio. He's forgotten his snare. What are we going to do? Oh, we'll do the song without a snare. Don't Fall In Love has no snare on it because he forgot it. But it's one of the main reasons why it's a hit because... The space the snare would have taken, I can hear what would have happened. It would have been, ah, don't fall in, you know, on beat two and four. So there's a hole there. So something else managed to take up. You know, it's probably one of the reasons why it was a hit. Anyhow, we recorded it. I did the vocal laying on the floor at 5.30 a.m. Still sounds pretty good. And uh, so a couple of days later, Molly gets back from overseas. We're mixing. Don't Fall In Love, the B-side. They've allowed us, like, two hours to mix it. So we're in there. Molly comes in, says, what's this? And we go, oh, it's the B-side. And then he, he, he does this face where his sort of jaw drops and he's he becomes a different face. And he's saying, I don't think this is a B-side. I think it's a hit. And we go, oh, come on. <laughs> it's a song they wrote in five minutes a week ago. Tony, Tony, turn everything down. Now I want you to bring up the drum. Now bring the maracas in. Next minute. That's why he's the best producer I've ever seen because he can make something, he can build it from the bottom and then there you go. So so essentially the biggest hit you've had in your career is a mistake. Is a mistake. Was a B-side. Yeah. Isn't that, it's an, and it's fantastic how it just, that things yeah. happen. We had no yeah. idea it was that it had the hooks in it, you know. Well, we added them. I did the guitar hook and and whatever other hooks are in it. But, um, yeah, it's a very simple recording. It's a simple song. Yeah. It works. It's weathered the test of time. You go to Dreams of Love yeah. and you get to a completely new level. Yeah. It's a, um, a, a song with structure. It's got depth. Mm. Um, it could be played many ways, quite frankly, mm. and gives a completely different feel. Mm. And so, I mean, the album has all those qualities to it. So you go out, you promote the record, and you do what every band does. Yeah. And it's been this whole 18-month process, as you've said, to to record this record. Yeah. So where, where do we get to? What's happened to the ferret, ferrets after that album? Well, so we're... Um you know, we're still playing the songs around our houses and, like, jamming and, and that's what we love doing the most, playing. So we're always playing. and We weren't playing gigs, but we were, you know, on top of... But the trouble is, uh, you know, and Molly had a lot of ideas for extra things, like the choir and things like that. So we've got this album. It's finished finally. There's some tracks that have got, like, 70 or 80 people in it. We've got our first gigs lined up. The Tiger Lounge was the first gig we did in Richmond. So we're in Studio One at Metropolis uh, practising the songs. Five of us. We had a keyboard player by then, Ian Mawson, great piano player. So there's five of us playing the songs and Molly comes in and he's going, where's this part of the song? I I can't hear that. And... uh, there's no strings. Yeah, of course there's no strings, you know. We can't carry the symphony orchestra around with us. So he really, you know, cracked the shits because we didn't sound like, I mean, don't fall in love. We sounded exactly like it, but all the other big orchestra tracks, we had no hope of 
reproducing them. So that was when, um, you know, Molly used to come around to our place for Sunday dinners and we'd sing around the piano and my sisters would be singing and it was his idea to get the girls in the band, which, you know, was a really good idea. I was, you know, I was into it. But I knew what the boys would say, you know, we're not playing in band with girls in it. But they ended up coming round because the song went to number one two weeks later. It has a has a strange way of making people sober up. <laughs> um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, so Jane, my sister, did the string lines on her Mellotron and so we went out and we started, we went out, we did the Blondie tour and just did all that East Coast, up and down, up and down, and we got really good and we added something else we had that other bands didn't have. We brought our record engineer, Tony Cohen, on the road with us. And all the other roadies hated that because in those days, roadies were just, you know, mates who could drive a truck and lift a lot of gear. It wasn't a specialised thing like it is It's now. a huge advantage to say you had your... Your recording engineer yeah. on the road well, with you. nobody else had that. And and uh, the rest of the crew used to kick up because Tony, Tony's got very delicate hands, you know. He wasn't loading anything or and he flew with the band, which they really didn't like. But the fact is he was got us some great sounds. So we, we did a lot of gigs where the sound was fantastic. Mm. Yeah. And so we get to, we've promoted that that record. Mm. We've gone past that. What's happened to the second record? And the second record came out with very little fanfare. Yeah, well, some bad things happened in between there. Um, we had a few lineup changes, but a really bad thing that happened was the Herald Sun music writer, a guy called Pat Bowring, um, came to the studio and to do a interview with me. This is when the song's number one, you know. We'd been up all night mixing something else. And and I sort of knew Pat because my mum had worked at the Herald Sun for 14 years. Uh, first as the secretary to the chief of staff and then she became Coronella, the children's page, you know, in the Sun that was there for 50 years or something. And she knew Pat, and but like I was, pretty out of it and we're talking and it's 10.30 in the morning, no sleep. And I told him that, yeah, you know, we'd uh, snorted we'd snorted some smack on different occasions. And of course, you know, two days later, it's a double page spread, ferrets on drugs, da da da. And that sort of, I'm not saying that was the main thing, but that stopped. After that, the record company didn't really, you know, they we were recording the second album at Richmond Recorders mm. and we were doing, you know, things that at the time were pretty stupid. We had a song called The Man in the Moon, which was about growing your own dope and the chorus was We Want It Legalised, We Want It Decriminalised and, um, and another song called Tate's Run, which was glorifying Donald Tate, so, the drug runner. And recording that mm. was with the... Ferret's band, but because I, when you got to that second record, yeah. it was a different band that actually went out to, to yeah. play that record, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Ken Firth had left. He became musical director at Rocky Horror Show, and my sisters had left, and yeah, it was still, it was just a different bass player, Ricky Petropolis. And was Rod, Rodney on drums on that? Uh, out no, promoting? Rodney never played with the Ferret's. Right. No. Okay. So, and then. So anyhow, we, you know, we're at Richmond Recorders, the, and that, you know, that's got some good songs on it, that record, but it's a bit scratchy. It's nowhere near. Well, what, what I would give it an opinion of is that it's a stripped back ferrets. Yeah. It yeah. was essentially, um, would I put it more towards a rock band to the ferrets who are a pop rock band? Yeah. And, and a big sound. Yeah. To your stripped back. This is your guitar kind of band. Yeah, and that's what we were. Like we sort of, Dave and KD and I threw out a lot of it. We sort of, we resented a bit that, you know, because we were rock and rollers really well, well, and we, well, beca yeah. we became a pop band. So. Well, we'll explore that because mm. what, okay, the, the second record really didn't do anything and 
Um, well, I'll just tell you what happened. Yeah. Um, so we, we've done the final mixes. We're at Richmond Recorders and Molly and Michael Wadinsky come down to hear the final mixes. They didn't, didn't even know what, you know, they weren't intrinsically involved in that one. And, you know, the first We Want It Legalised chorus comes out and I looked at Michael Wadinsky and his jaws just dropped and, you know, I could tell then there'll be no pushing this record, you know. So we ended up moving to Sydney. For we lived there for three months. Well, I do remember that because you you got interviewed with that record quite well by Donny on Sounds Unlimited. Yeah, and Christy Eliza, yeah. and yeah. got quite a bit of yeah. yeah. So well, we and, and that and that essentially became the end of the ferrets. Yeah. Um, but uh, and what I kind of saw what happened from that. Billy Miller becomes more of a a, a rock a rock guitarist or a rock mm. singer. So where do we go to after the ferrets? Do okay, we might have a break. You're trying to get a new band together or whatever. Yeah. Where, where did the great blokes come? Are they fair way up? They're um they're seventy nine. So I've never really stood still and taken a year off or anything. So would have been only a few months after the end of the ferrets that. The great blokes started. That was primarily most of the time a three-piece hard rocking pub band that went. Now that was with Rodney on drums, yeah. right? That's where Rodney comes in. And who was the other member? Well, it was the bass player, and it was usually for most of it. Well, it started off KD from the Ferrets was in it for quite a while, yeah. um, but the longest was this guy Phil Miles, whose other band is I Spit on Your Gravy. Which is another big name in Melbourne. Yeah. With the great blokes, it really was a rock and roll band. Yeah. And the amount of gigs that you did mm. must be phenomenal. Mm. I mean, wherever you went, the great blokes were playing. Yeah. Um, so ha- where did all these songs come from? Because there's a lot of fairly hard rock and roll yeah. songs in there. A- and suddenly Billy Miller mm. is not only a singer... Mm. But he's a guitarist. Mm. Well, I bought my old Strat in 74, which is the green Stratocaster. It's the only guitar I've ever had, and that sort of inspired me. Uh, I'd stopped, right, you know, Martin, my old songwriting partner, he was living down at Ocean Grove, and I'd stopped writing. I'd, I was writing songs myself, and they were a lot harder-edged with my words and that. The great blokes... The reason why we did so many gigs was, um, you know, we were sort of right in with premier artists and uh, Frank just sent us everywhere and, and we were doing like five or six gigs a week, every week, sometimes more, you know, two, two on certain days. Our manager, our main manager in The Great Blokes called Leo Gray, he was Frank's right-hand man at Premier, so here's another way we got so many gigs. Um, now, we had Ken Firth on the bass at some stage. For some reason, one night, I needed a bass player. We had to play. I thought I could do it, just me and the drums. My drummer, Rodney, said, I know a guy called Phil. And I said, okay, so we went round to his house in Richmond, and it was painted black, and had mutilated dolls in the hall. They were punks. They changed the number on their letterbox so the postman would get it wrong, you know, they were real punks. And um, anyhow, I said, asked him about it, and he said, oh, I only know three chords on the guitar. I've, I've never picked up a bass. And I said, look, I had a bass on me. I played a couple of the songs, most of them were in E and A. So he didn't do the gig that night. KD ended up doing it, but within a week he was playing and he had the best feel, this guy Phil, for someone who had never played bass. And he was disciplined. So for the first three months, we were playing a lot of gigs, but he only used the bottom thick E string. Bass is an interesting instrument because um, a lot of it's the frequency you're hearing not the notes. So as long as you're here in a frequency and it's rocking with the drums, you'll be able to dance to it. 
And then after a month or two, he started using the next string. And then within three months, he was a fantastic bass player. You know, great musical ear. It didn't just come out of anywhere. And so, yeah, we did thousands of gigs and mostly my songs that I'd written. Some I wrote with the guy on bass, um, but most of them rock and roll. I do, I do remember the tapes being punted around to all the record companies and unfortunately yeah. an album wasn't recorded, the great no. blokes, uh, but there's quite a few live recordings and mm. obviously one of my personal favourites being Blood on the Ice, yeah, uh, which has got to be a quintessential rock and roll song <laughs> from Australia. Yeah. Um, it, and and if, you, if anybody had seen it live, the energy that comes through that song is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so we... We moved on to the Spaniards after that, yeah. didn't we? Oh, well, there was the Gypsies. Were the Gypsies prior to the yeah, Spaniards? So all through the great blokes, Molly and Michael have been incredibly loyal to me, you know. I was, uh, I never used to even drink till Superstar, but, you know, throughout the, the 70s and early 80s, once we, once the ferrets took off, you know, I just didn't control the, the largesse that's, you know, everybody wants to give you everything, drugs, grog. I just didn't have the willpower to uh, say no. So I did fuck up a lot of things, but I don't know how, but I still managed to play five or six nights a week with integrity and power. So I don't know how that happens. But, but uh, Michael and Molly kept, you know, they put out Perpetual Motion, which was a, under the uh-huh. Billy Miller and the Great Blokes. Later in the Spaniards, God is a Shield, which is a song I wrote and we've been doing in the Great Blokes for years before the Spaniards. Typical Molly, we did three different versions of it. God is a Shield, it went to like 14, 3XY, I think. That was with the Spaniards. We did a rock version. We did a church version, in which case Tony Cohen was in the Melbourne Town Hall miking up mics everywhere because they got permission to use the famous organ there and a soul version of the song. So Molly's got great, and Michael, influence, you know. Where did the gypsies come? After the Spaniards or prior? The Gypsies came just after the Spaniards. So let's get to the Spaniards then because we've moved. So And the Ferrets, absolute fantastic band and a great rock and roll act. Mm. uh, But then comes the Spaniards, which in a sense Billy Miller's back into, I'll call it the pop rock because it was heavily commercial. Yeah. Heavily commercialised rock. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So... You know, the great blokes were still going along in early 83, but not really, you know, going to get huge success. Going to be able to play for as long as we want, but... um, Well, I I remember the first mention of the Spaniards was in the Melbourne Sun. Yeah. There was a good half page on it, and there was a new supergroup formed because there was Mick Peeling from Stars and Billy Miller from the Ferrets. Um, and this was the new, and I, I remember reading it going, this could actually be a really good band. Yeah. And the next thing I knew is I, I think it was the Prospect Hill Hotel. Yeah. And it was chock-a-block. Yeah. And the Spaniards were playing, and they were playing everywhere. Yeah, so the manager, Wayne DeGrucci, was the manager of the Zoot back in the 60s. He was the manager of JPY right through John Paul Young's career. He was a great manager and he was really best manager I've ever had. You know, he was fantastic, but had great ideas too. And he had this idea that Australia needs like a Hall and Oates type band with two singers, one blonde, one black hair. It's all, it's quite similar actually, because the black haired guy in Hall and Oates is the guitarist and the blonde guy, pretty boy guy is is Mick. Mick's pretty, I don't mind saying that. And um, and the black-haired guy's sort of like the Spanish-looking desperado on guitar. And uh, so he put it, we put it together and, um, you know, we got signed. Uh, we were to do, we got signed by EMI and we were going up to Sydney to record for however long we wanted to do an album. Most of the songs were 
songs that I'd written in the great blokes, you know, Blood on the Ice was one that was going to be on it. Um, yeah, so I'd written most of the songs and we're going up there, wake up, find out Wayne DeGrucci's died in his sleep of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 38 and without him the vibe sort of dropped off. The record company still said we'll do a mini album it was called, it was six or seven tracks, the Spaniards album and not in Sydney at 301 at the big studio, we'll do it down here at um, Platinum which was a great studio anyhow but um, yeah. So Spaniards, um, look, they did what they did and, and it, it can actually be, it, you know, it sounds a bit like the dingoes who go to America, managed mm. by the Lynn Skinner management, were destined for big things, played big stages mm. and bang, the, the plane crash occurs, the whole career comes, you know, back to earth. Yeah. And, um, you know, so from, from the Spaniards, then Billy goes into more solo. Yeah. work in a sense. I mean, you've done four albums now which revolve around suburb names or a state name. Yeah. And is there a theme that's continuing on for the yeah. future? Yeah, of course there is. There's, um, first one was Yarraville. These are my solo albums. Then Victoria. Now, the last one last year took me 18 years to get last year's one out or 16 years. That's called Australia. So the next one, I don't know, is it Southern Hemisphere, is it Earth? But it's going to keep going. Okay. And that's, I think that, you know, comes back to uh, to Billy Miller, who's been a musician since the mid-60s. And, you know, um, you've never stopped recording. Mm. And I'd like to finish off by saying, have you enjoyed your musical career? Yeah, I've enjoyed most of it. It's been absolutely fantastic. I mean, yeah, I love playing. Uh, I sort of, after all those Spaniards and Gypsies and stuff like that, I've, I played one night at the Clifton Hill Hotel for half an hour by myself on the acoustic. The guy loved it. I ended up doing 12 years there and I realised I could uh, do four or five gigs a week by myself. No overheads, no problems, just go and plug in. So I've done a lot of that. But, um, oh, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Like, I wouldn't have seen, you know, I played in the Dave Graney band for several years. Because of that, I got to see Vietnam, London, Darwin. You know, the travel's fantastic. Well, uh, that's a resounding yes. And uh, thanks very much, Billy. Good on you. Thanks. Thanks, Vince. And there it is, another Laneway Talks. If you enjoyed that, there's more. Just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day, folks. Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. <laughs> Stupid loaded question. A couple of blokes, couple of beers with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' Maltese. You're eating their Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. (laughs) Listen wherever you get your podcasts.